Okay, so we <clears throat> have some time again. If there's anything that you want to bring forward for some reflection. Well, the question, as I understand it, is that the way we've been speaking about metta is particularly pinpointing the uh, ill will factor that arises rather than kind of whatever whatever happens to appear. Um, and I think the question is almost borders on therapy. I don't think it borders on therapy. Um, there's two aspects, I think, to to matter, so my response would be one. Of course, it is it is by nature inclusive. It is by nature a attitudinal commitment of standing near to all things. Within all of the realms of insight practice, of course, there is a direction. And the direction of all insight practice, of course, is towards really liberating the heart, awakening. And so all insight practice will actually very closely examine what binds the heart, what entangles the heart. And it's not the sounds that appear or the sensations that appear or the thoughts that appear. It is, of course, our reactions to them and the way that they're often met with a a pose of resistance, of aversion, of ill will, which is, of course, where the ground of selfing is built. So I think in insight practice, in insight meditation, if we use that, that phrase, um, there is a very powerful investigative factor. It's not just about being with. Um, mindfulness is never just about being with what is. It always rests upon this, this, this ground of understanding what is. Not only what is arising, but the way in which our worlds are actually our world of experience and our world of selfing is actually constructed moment to moment because clearly there is a very strong direction in the path. Um, Yeah, I think that's why I was... I mean, there's no doubt, I think, that um, in practicing metta, you're going to highlight in this particular way ill will. That is the enemy. It's the enemy of matter. So it's going to be there. It's going to be very, um, very obvious. 
as a as a sati, as a um, form of mindfulness, the job ultimately of of that sati is to remove the ill will. Now, it's not going to happen immediately, um, but it will happen over time. There's a very striking image that's given in Sanyutanakaya, which is the connected discourses of a surgeon probing for an arrowhead with poison in it. And he uses, um, he uses a probe to probe into the wound where the arrowhead is in order to be able to remove it and all the poison. And actually, in this case, Metta is doing that job. And also, it, it's uh, it's good to remember. I mean, it, it's not to sort of, um, you know, sometimes we make these big distinctions between what is therapy, what is meditation. But I think it's good to remember that the Buddha sometimes talked about the path or talked about the person on the path, talked about himself, actually, as being, you know, this kind of, this kind of medical model as John is referring to, you know, as, as a healer of pain, as a healer of suffering, you know, that not only is, is the practice one of, you know, examining the wound to make a diagnosis, actually, the Buddha uses metaphor, um, you know, so identifying what, what really is, what really are we concerned with here in, in a very quite specific way and then spoke about, you know, um, on the basis of di- the diagnosis, looking for the cure, looking for the healing, looking for the prognosis. You know, so that model is actually used of a, of a kind of healing model within the path. And of course, what is really being healed is struggle and torment and the causes of struggle and torment. Now, that commitment spans various disciplines. It's not confined to any one discipline. Um, and it's, it's in this particular discipline, um, you know, it's presented really in a kind of a very kind of simple but also elegant way that to be free of struggle and torment, we are actually really asked to look at these kind of universal and personal tendencies towards greed, hatred, and delusion. So the question is uh, uh, to talk about the different qualities of kindness, which I think we have touched upon quite a bit, but uh, the way in which uh, even kindness can be a little bit hijacked by selfing and and used as a way to sort of um, create a new model of me, you know, an improved model, upgraded model. I'm now the kind self. 
I mean, I, I, I guess it's very important to recognize that, you know, um, clinging and grasping doesn't have any conscience at all, you know, and, and actually has a capacity to seize upon the wholesome as well as the unwholesome, to seize upon the skillful and, as well as the unskillful. But, of course, clinging and grasping has some very familiar manifestations, you know, needing to defend, fearing loss, the identity, needing to defend the identity, fearing its loss, uh, needing to assert that identity, uh, needing affirmation for that identity in all kinds of ways. So, I, you know, and then, of course, you know, I mean, that would be really part of our path, you know. I mean, it it's recognizing that conscienceless nature of clinging and grasping. Um, and I, I think we it would become perceptible when it is a more contrived identity rather than a genuine, genuine sense of befriending. I, I suspect the difference would become quite quite noticeable to us. Yeah, I think there's a real qualitative difference in the way that uh, you would perceive that kindness. Um, one of the great things that's actually, was, is actually something that originated in the Buddha's words but ended up in Hinduism, which is the idea of doing an action without any thought of the fruit. Um, well, I think you can very clearly see if there's any thought of the fruit it's usually attached to a self. Usually I'm going to do my kindness on you, <laughs> hoping that I'll get something back out of it. Um, there are many myriad roads to self, including the virtues. Yeah, It's one I think we just have to watch out for. It's just one of the pitfalls. Selfing is insidious. It really is. Yeah, it's very subtle. It's, it's kind of lurking in the shadows all the time, waiting to hijack whatever we're involved in. But I think if we actually are reflective, we can see very qualitatively in, in the action itself, because there's usually some self-conscious sense of what's in this for me in that. Yeah, so this action, when it's genuine kindness, actually just does it. Yeah. A kind of another thing to watch out for is that it, generally, a, a genuine sense of kindness doesn't leave too many residues in the mind. You know, whereas when there's, a, I think, more of a kind of contrived kindness, you know, uh, I, I suspect there would be quite a few residues. You know, was that really appreciated? You know, <laughs> anybody notice how kind I was being? You know, um, you know those kind of residues. Just, a, just little things like that was a really kind action, wasn't it? I yeah. really surpassed myself today. Other teachers I've learned meta from have at least implied that when you send meta, and I believe you don't like to use that term, This question really is about the sending of metta, and I think there's a certain um, 
picking up on a degree of scepticism about it, probably from myself, from perhaps from Christina, but probably from myself, I think, yeah. Um, whether we think this is magical thinking or whether I think this is magical thinking. All I can say is there's no textual justification for the idea of sending and receiving metta at all. This is not what the Buddha taught. Um, it's not even there of the sending and the benefiting of merit in the early texts. This is Hinduism creeping back in. It's uh, Brahminical thinking that creeps back in at a very, very early stage in Buddhist history. I'm sorry to do the historical number on you here, um, but it really is. It's not there in the Buddha's teaching at all. We do not send metta in that sense, and people do not receive it. They cannot be altered by it. The whole point of metta is changing your mind. Yeah. It's not changing another's mind. Um, so it's not about giving and sending in that sense. It's actually just about changing your own way of seeing the world. This is what's so vitally important. And I think, for me, all I can say is very personally here, if we get hijacked into this idea of giving and sending and all this sort of stuff, uh, we actually lose the main impetus of what it's about. We really do. Um, and it does become a little bit of magical thinking. That's my own feeling about this. But Christina might have another view. No, I, I, I'm, I'm not much into sending meta. It, it's, um, but it, I think there's a big difference between sending meta and embodying the quality of meta, which I think is what we're concerned with here. And I think clearly the embodiment is the way in which the the very cultivation of that <clears throat> inclination, those intentions, the very decreasing of ill will, I think with practice and with cultivation really does, you know, sink until it's in the bones. And we become really attuned inwardly when the absence of matter is there, you know, when it's kind of, you know, resentment or ill will is there. But I think that embodiment may or may not touch the people that we connect with in this world. May or may not. Because I think, you know, one of the dangers of the idea of sending matter is that we want to change somebody else. Mm. I want that difficult person in my life to be kinder, to be nicer, to be easier to be with. And, you know, there can be a lot of kind of um, investment in that, you know, and then also, you know, the potential for a lot of disappointment and feel like meta doesn't work. Now, but the embodiment of meta is, you know, and I was referring to it this afternoon, um, you know, can indeed touch the world around us because we are leaving a footprint in the world all the time through our thoughts, our words, our acts, the choices we make. You know, when I spoke about the difference between meeting, you know, an immigration officer who's kind and one who looks at me like, well, I am an alien, um, officially. Um, uh, but, but, you know, just actually, you know, the, this, the touching of that. But, of course, to be touched by the embodiment of metta in anyone requires us, our capacity to be touched. You know, so there is a, a kind of mutuality, but it is, it is bearing in mind how very 
relational connecting, as John was talking about, you know, our very lives are. You know, and in that relational sense, we, we are always practicing or embodying something. You know, so the whole cultivation of metta is suggesting that this is actually a very ennobling quality to embody. That indeed may, may indeed leave a different kind of footprint in the world. But in that sense, it's very, very different between descending and the living, which I feel this, this path and this practice is more concerned with. Mm-hmm. Right. What's not the state? Being neutral. Finding a neutral person. It's like a person or a feeling can only be neutral once. Because because as soon as you see it, it ceases to be neutral. Well, you've noticed we we have quite explicitly tried to erase the word neutral from (laughs) our vocabulary because basically that word really implies actually not paying attention, not seeing. And of course, the moment that we do see, we do, we do also see the kind of surge of our very familiar uh, propensities to try and make the scene familiar to us. So we start our narratives of liking and disliking or the, the, you know, the, the shared traits or the associations that we have. So of course we see that story arising alongside the seeing of another or the seeing really in in insight practice. One shouldn't anticipate that that wouldn't happen. But I think what we're really kind of suggesting is that you know, we see the arising of the propensity to make something familiar, to make something known which is very, very different than something seen, isn't it? It's, it's like the habit pattern is to make the seen into someone known. And the way that we do that is, of course, is trying to slot our currently, presently seen person into how they remind us of this or, you know, how they, we like this. So there's a kind of a movement that's happening there from the seeing 
to the attempt to know, which is often a kind of a, almost an unconscious propensity to try and pin someone down in our field of likes and dislikes, you know, in our field of safety and comfort. But we shouldn't imagine that that wouldn't necessarily arise. I mean, that happens all the time on silent retreats, doesn't it? You know, when you come into a retreat with a whole load of people, you've never met them before, you've no idea how they were, who they are, they start off as being kind of unseen. Well, that doesn't last long, does it? You know, within a day or two, we've got everybody slotted, you know, <laughs> who we like, who we have trouble with, you know, what they do, how we know them. And it's so, in- it's so fascinating to see how quickly that arises. So perhaps what we're trying to do with, with the practice, both in Satipatthana practice and in Metta practice, is perhaps to try and to instill a little bit of a pause between that seeing and knowing. Mm-hmm. Hmm? So that person actually can, you know, we know that we're knowing is basically our narrative about someone. And perhaps if we can assert a little bit of a pause, we we can actually see the mystery and the complexity of that person, all that we don't know. Hmm? Just as perhaps we would like to be seen, you know, in all our mystery and fullness and complexity, without just being categorized or stereotyped or classed in some way. And, you know, perhaps part of the sort of restraint part of metta, I might say, the restraint part of metta might be that capacity to to know that that pause is actually something really wonderful and is actually almost a gift. It's almost an act of metta in itself to allow someone to be kind of not known, to allow them to reveal themselves. And... You know, if you think about that, say, in Satipatthana practice, you know, how quickly the mind is moving into wanting to pin everything down, wanting to know everything, wanting to bring everything into the world of familiarity and comfort and safety. And how, like in insight practice and Satipatthana practice, we're learning to restrain that a little bit, knowing that it, that it is in the world of narrative a narrative rooted in association and history. Yeah. I just want to give a little bit of a. Yeah. I just want to give a little bit more of a technical explanation to what Christine has just said, which is this is all part of the perceptual process, whether it's Vedana or whether it's, um, in a sense this movement between like, dislike, and neutrality, it's the same movement. It is actually a Vedana in many ways. There is a perceptual chain that's used in the Madhupindaka Sutta, in the Honeyball Sutta, which runs basically like this. I'll only give you a truncated version of it, which is that which we contact, we feel, that which we feel, we think about, that which we think about, we perceive, that which we perceive, we proliferate, that which we proliferate becomes the shape of our life and gives rise to all conflict. <laughs> yeah, that's basically, it's not a direct quote, but that's basically what's been going on. Interestingly, the point up to feeling 
is neutral in the sense it, it's impersonal, I should say, not neutral. It's impersonal. There's nothing in there. When perception kicks in, actually the perception is always a perception through past categories. This is what uh, I think Christine is trying to say about knowing the person. I'm trying to know them. I'm trying to pin them down. I'm trying to put them into all my past categories. So I don't actually perceive the person. Interestingly, in the Sutta Napata, um, there's a quotation which goes that the, person, well, the, the arahant without perceptions is free. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't perceive. What it means, he doesn't bring past perceptions to present experience. Yeah. So there's a genuine encounter whether this be with a person or with the phenomena of the world, most of our encounters are not genuine. They're just past experiences. Yeah. Yeah. They're just imprinting. We're always imprinting on what is present. Um, and then it falls into the whole idea of proliferating and obsessing and doing all things that we do and holding on very, very strongly to our perceptions of it. But this actually is a description of misperception, of not perception at all. So if I just might add, the idea of working with a neutral person is to bring that without past perceptions to get to know that person and see that person. It's to get, I would actually use the word to get to see them. To get to know them is to bring them under categories of perception. In reality, in everyday life, this this is this is a practical task. Yeah, yeah. I mean, interestingly, in that little um, perceptual cognitive framework that I gave you, it's interesting that the end result of that is conflict. Yeah, and even the person we like, we can so easily get into a conflictual relationship with if they no longer fit our categories of perception that we had of them <laughs> you, know, you haven't stood still I freeze framed you at one moment and you haven't stood still <laughs> you've changed on me <laughs>
Well, first of all, um, as okay. Well, the question the question is really very simple in many senses. It's is where does this practice of sending metta come from? You know, where does it arise from? Because it is quite a frequent one. Um, or frequent recommendation of many Western teachers. I know that I'm going to get. I know teachers in the UK who would do that sort of thing, and certainly there are teachers here who do that, recommending this uh, idea of sending metta. Okay, it's not found in the original texts. I will say that quite clearly. It's not in the Nikayas. It's not in the Nikayas at all. I, I don't want to get into too big a historical digression because it's not really the place. But um, one of the thing, one of the things that happens very soon after the Buddha's death, and probably during the Buddha's lifetime, because he's very resistant to it, is people trying to hijack and co-opt his teaching into something which is more readily understandable in terms of their own already their own frameworks. The framework of ancient India is what. We now would call Hinduism, but it isn't Hinduism in the Buddha's time. It is actually Brahmanism. Uh, and there's all sorts of ideas like this. For example, of sending goodwill to the ancestors. Sending things, you know, like being able to... I mean, the Buddha parodies this absolutely hugely. There's a lovely instant, for example, where, um, the Buddha, where these two Brahmins are picking up water out of the river and they're throwing it towards the sun. And the Buddha asks them, what are you engaged in? He said, we're sending water to the ancestors. He picks up water and turns and throws it in the opposite direction. Now you're horrified and say, what are you doing? And he says, I'm watering the fields. <laughs> you know, so... There is this idea of, of sending and transference and all that, which is actually a Brahmanical context. Now, where do we get it in the West? That's the kind of more historical side of it. Where do we get this in the West? Well, we get it because actually an awful lot of Buddhist teaching in the West is infused with aspects of yoga, with aspects of Advaita Hinduism, uh, with Hinduism per se, with little bits of Sufism, it, there's, a, there's a big eclectic mix upon which people draw often for these ideas. It's certainly current there in, for example, Upanishadic yogic type thinking, these sort of ideas. My, my suspicion, I can't actually prove it, is that it comes from that. But it's not in the original teachings. Yeah. It becomes later, you see it through the history of Buddhism, there's no doubt of that, uh, you know, in, in Chinese Buddhism, for example, these ideas are very, very strong. Uh, but then again, it goes back to Confucianism and earlier Taoism with uh, very strong ideas of ancestor worship and things like that in it. So it, it's a, I think it's a complex picture, actually, we're talking about. I mean, the only thing I would add to that is I, I think it's nuances, you know, because when, say, in, in the kind of formal meta practices that are taught in the West... And that are very, very skillful means, you know, in terms of bringing these different categories of beings into our field of attention. I mean, the line between holding that person with an attitudinal commitment and inclination towards befriending and feeling that we're doing something, sending something, is very fine, actually. You know, but there is a distinction. There is a distinction. Um, but I, I also want to draw on the aspect of the Brahma Viharas, which is actually deeply concerned with what we do. So it is not entirely just an attitudinal locating of our 
thoughts, emotions, attitudes, intentions, it is also concerned with this kind of more active side of all of, particularly of, of the first two Brahma-Viharas, where, you know, we intend to align our actions and our thoughts and our words actually with that intention. So there is an active side. And again, the nuance of that is like we're, we're doing metta, you know. But actually, we're actually translating that attitudinal commitment into the way that we live in the world. So, you know, there's, there's this, you know, this kind of nuanced line, which I think sometimes I think just sometimes the language is not always that precise. You know, when we talk about sending... Um, Christian, in, in Christian churches now, the Protestant ones that I have known, there's, a, there's an explicit sense in, of sending prayer to people to heal them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that, that, that would be wonderful if it, if it works, but it's, a, it's a different from what you're teaching yes. here. Mm. Different, yeah. Very different. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> There, in the red. You. <laughs> Unless I'm colorblind. I wanted to um, reflect that I'm very grateful that you um, brought up today a couple of times um, intuition and creativity. And um, at the beginning of this last sitting that you invoked or invited us to visualize, um, because the alchemy of those things for me um, is incredibly liberating to be able to really respond in the moment to that person that is there for me to practice my work. Mm-hmm. Um, just the, um, it's just the liberty of being able to respond to that person in that moment and how that meta is being called for for me to practice with them at that time. It's amazing um, to be able to <laughs> sneak up behind my enemy on a bus <laughs> and practice meta <laughs> without them knowing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I get the lovely picture of friendliness by stealth. (laughs) Uh, This question or response may not uh, be within the framework of 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 uh, this course, but it's a response to the story you just told us about the throwing of the water. If I were in such a situation and I responded in a way that you have reported that the Buddha responded, I would be questioning myself about right speech. And and, uh, perhaps even of befriending in terms of metta. And and, Mm. Well, can I respond to that? There was this question. Hit the question. Yeah, I'm going to. I was just going to. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) 
the question or actually it was a reflection was that um, it was a response to the little instance, the little story I gave of the Buddha, you know, with the with the Brahmins throwing water. So it was the sun and him doing something completely different. And um, the person's asking a question is actually saying perhaps um, if it was him, he would be reflecting on whether this was right speech or not. Um, or perhaps there was a friendlier way of approaching this. Does that, does that yeah. Okay, well, um, the Buddha isn't frightened sometimes of saying things as they are. Yeah, he really does. There's a sutta in the Majjhimanakaya, which again is worth reading. Um, I'll write it up on the board tomorrow, I won't do it tonight. But the, the, this particular sutta is actually all about speech. And the questioner, the interlocutor, actually says to the Buddha, do you ever speak harshly? And the Buddha says, yes, sometimes I do speak harshly. But I only speak harshly when there is profit in it for the person who's hearing it. Yeah. In, other kind, in other instances, when there is no profit, I will not speak harshly. And so really what he's using is speech. This could be considered to be right speech because actually in this, they didn't give you the full story, the, the Brahmins actually begin to reflect on what they're doing and then they change and they become, you know, they go from home to homelessness and all the, the usual sort of thing. So it's actually meant to wake them up a little bit about what they engage in. You have to remember the Buddha lives in a highly ritualistic period kind of take the story within context and a highly ritualistic period of which he is very critical because most of it is empty ritual from his point of view. So he does often speak very directly. I wouldn't say harshly. He speaks very directly or he does things very directly. He doesn't mince his words. This doesn't... I mean, we get this very particular image of the Buddha um, of always being soft and gentle and kind. And yes, he is most of the time, but sometimes he is really very direct. Very, very direct when he thinks there's change uh, that can occur through that directness. Um, and so it's not so much right speech is always soft, gentle speech. It's where, what does that speech do? You know, how does it operate? Is it wounding? Is it, um, is it going to change somebody? Is it has the effect of getting them to reflect? These are all parts of the equation that we have to look at. And it's not just be soft and gentle. Yeah, and the Buddha certainly isn't soft and gentle sometimes. Thank you. I mean, I mean, John, you know, speaks of the very ritualistic society that the Buddha was actually, you know, quite countercultural in his time. It was very radical in that sense, mm. you know, questioning the prevailing, prevailing belief systems and ideologies. You know, I'm not so convinced that our society and our culture is actually so so very different in a way. You know, our society, our culture is filled with all with all kinds of kind of uh, commonly agreed systems. Some of them are really very unhelpful. Um, I mean, I don't want to get into any kind of political debate, but if I used as an example gun laws in America. You know, some people speak very directly to this. But it is, you know, there's a way in which there's a kind of prevailing agreement that this is all right. I mean, but we can think of a thousand of these in terms of much, you know, social niceties. Um, 
And I think, you know, the Buddha was, in my understanding, he wasn't that concerned with consoling people. I think there was a genuine sense of empathy, care. But, you know, what John said, does it profit them? Mm. Not does it profit me. So it's not about, you know, my view is better than yours. It's a kind of like, well, does this actually lead to liberation or not? You know, does this actually lead to awakening? Does it lead to a just society? Does it lead to an equal, you know, society of respect and, and rooted in metta? And, you know, there are times, I'm sure, in our own lives where, you know, there can be a lot of fear about just saying what we see to be worth saying. You know, there can be all kinds of fears about criticism, about, you know, being put down, about being scorned, about being ridiculed. And yet when we look at actually any of the kind of great social, political transformers of our time, they are people who said things that were unpopular. You know, they are people who said things that, you know, spoke to to suffering and its causes and sometimes in a kind of wilderness where it was hardly could be heard and yet it was not for their profit it was for the profit of what of others so you know i think it, you know the whole question of wise speech is a very very big one um, but it is not always why speech is, I would just end by saying, it's not always popular. Mm. <coughs> can, can I just add one other thing to that? I mean, a lot, you don't get this, and I only really want to say this very briefly, but you don't get this necessarily if you don't understand cultural background, is so much of the way the Buddhist teaching is formulated is actually implicitly critical of the culture. Just one example of one that you've had, um, that you wouldn't pick up on because you probably don't know the cultural dimension to it. But when I listed out those three things, Suttamai Panya, Chintamai Panya, and Bhavanamai Panya, remember the understanding that came through hearing, the understanding that came through reflection and, and reasoning, and the understanding that came through um, cultivation or development. Well, actually, the Brahmanical tradition only had the first bit, Sutta, and you were meant to believe what you heard. And so by adding the other two, he's already being critical of that thing, okay, saying it doesn't stop with just hearing. You must reason it. You must apply it to your experience. In Brahmanical thinking, and actually some forms Hindu thinking, that doesn't occur because um, these scriptures, which are called Shruti, which actually is the Sanskrit version of the word sutta, to hear, hear, are revelatory texts. They're a bit like biblical texts. They're given. They're not to be questioned, not to be reasoned with. Yeah. And so there is that implicit criticism automatically uh, in the way he formulates the teaching.
so the question is around the phrase, you know, may I or may you be safe and protected. And um, I mean, I use that phrase, you know, quite, I mean, it's actually one that I feel is very important. And it's also very important that we reflect upon it and what it means for us. So it's not at all a silly question. Um, Clearly, I cannot protect all the people I care for, never mind the numerous beings I've never met, from all of the, you know, changes and events that will come into their life that may very well be very sorrowful, apart from aging, sickness and death, heartache, you know, disappointment. It's, it's beyond me to protect anyone from, to, to create that kind of illusory safety and protection. So safety and protection is not, uh, in those, these phrases, not a, a kind of, again, a magical thinking. When I think of safety protection, I think mostly about my own mind. Um, and, and I feel safety and protection has much to do with our capacity to cultivate genuine refuge. And I think what we're actually, may I be safe and protected from the world of impulse and confusion and greed and hatred and delusion, the storms of obsession, the storms of preoccupation, um, the ways that harm could you know, be engendered from all of that. So I really consider these to be that cultivation of inner refuge and to do with the ways of our own minds and hearts. I mean, when we see people that we care for, when we see people we struggle with, we actually do really get a sense of, you know, yes, aging, sickness and death, they are painful, they are sad, but torment is so much inwardly born. And for anyone to find the capacity to actually find a a real sense of safety and protection inwardly would probably be one of the greatest blessings and greatest cultivations they could ever come across. Ditto. Ditto. making sense. So, so the question is around, you know, many benefactors may be dead. Many people who are dear to us may have passed away. Many of our enemies actually may be dead, but they're still living up here. In a, um, <laughs> so um, it, it, again, it is not a question, you know, it's not about how that person is going to be. The benefactor is, is evoking the very qualities of metta, of appreciation, of, of thankfulness, of, of gratitude. So in a way, it doesn't really matter whether they're alive or dead. You know, It's actually 
continuing to keep alive this sense of relatedness and connectedness where, you know, it doesn't matter even if a person is not present in my life, you know, they, they are present in, in how I hold them, you know, and it doesn't matter if they're dead or just, you know, in Florida. <laughs> Is there an equivalence here? <laughs> but no, in that sense, because, you know, I, I am remembering, I am remembering that sense of gratitude. I am remembering that sense of thankfulness. So it's not kind of like it's the phrases are falling on somebody or not on somebody. That doesn't actually matter. You know, what it matters is that that genuine aspect of metta is being kind of brought into the into the light of mindfulness and in the light of awareness. So if I say that back, is it, how, is it possible then to say those phrases in relation to these people who have, are now dead but are still alive in my yeah. uh, economy? I, I would feel so, would, would you? Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think it's, it's useful if you want to particularly focus on that. I mean, often I recommend people to um, extend it in that bigger sense of benefactors that I was talking about earlier on today, where we widen it out, where the person who, who you see minimally doing something for you, um, you can treat them as a benefactor as well. And so we can spread it out. But you know, I, I, I don't have any um, you know, objections to what Christina said here. study him on functional MRI, but, and I think that with just having compassion was incredibly painful, if I'm remembering right, recollecting right, but with empathy, he could do something with it, so it was not, it's the other way around, but that's what it didn't sound like when you were describing empathy as more of an action. Uh, no, actually, what, what we were talking about this afternoon was mm. karuna more as an action, and anukampa is much more the quality of the empathy and the trembling. These are inseparable. Mm. I would say that they are inseparable. Um, they, they, they are part and parcel <coughs> of, the, the, uh, of the same fabric. You know, they are threads of the same fabric. I mean, the, the empathy, the, the trembling of the heart is that capacity of that completely unconditional listening and responsiveness, mm. responsiveness, the inner responsiveness. The corona part is then what happens with that. What happens, and we will actually go into this, I think, much more tomorrow. Yes, we will. Yeah, remember I was saying about corona, corona is doing something. Yeah, it comes from that root, meaning to do. <laughs> Tonglen is a strange practice. It's a strange practice. Personally, it's not one I recommend. 
Um, even despite the fact I was steeped in a Tibetan tradition for many, many, many years, it's not a practice, I think, that is necessarily psychologically very healthy in the Western world. Within Tibetan context, I can see that it often makes sense. Um, but in the Western world, I find it to be partly, and this is just my own personal view here, partly uh, a practice which is, is, is quite dangerous, actually, taking on the sufferings of others. You know? Whereas what we're doing in the Anukampa Karuna practices, as you'll hear more tomorrow, is not of that sort. Yeah, it's not of that kind of ilk. Um, it comes with a lot more insight. It's a lot less of what I call a ritualistic practice. Yeah, but much more of that tomorrow. Um, I think it's very important to to bear these different contexts mm. in mind. I mean, I was also mm. steeped in Tibetan teaching for many years, you know, and uh, you know, there's a great deal of prior practice before mm. Tonglen, and there's a lot about understanding emptiness and a lot about understanding non-self. Uh, you know, and there's a kind of an assumption that Tonglen is, is being practiced on that very deep understanding. You have someone who's a little bit of an inclination towards depression and despair mm. doing Tonglen practice. Uh, this is almost like a prescription for, uh, you know, chronic depression. It, it is actually psychologically very sensitive, mm-hmm. you know. So I think it, it's very important in this kind of spectrum of practices, you know, that one contextualizes them always, you know. And there's, it's very easy to kind of pick up practices that are assumed to have certain foundations without personally having those foundations, just as kind of, you know, kind of pick and mix type stuff. And then, and then they're, they're not always helpful. They're not always, they're not always helpful. Um, you know, if you look at Tibetan practice, you know, I mean, it, you know, you know, we have to talk about lifetimes of training before we get to Tonglen, you know, or before we get to, uh, you know, Dzogchen or anything else. We're talking about vast numbers of preliminary practices that are actually inclining the mind towards a certain contextualizing of that practice. And I think the danger is when some of these practices, you know, they, they're picked out. And without the psychological and emotional readiness, they may actually not be helpful. Mm. I think you had a question. Done. So I had the misperception that I would come to this retreat and dwell in the Brahma Viharas and it would be like a refuge. Um, <clears throat> but I'm finding that the seeing is just sort of amplified if I'm quieter. And I feel very weary. And uh, having just sat my first long retreat, I've done some of the techniques, you know, the redirecting techniques. And I guess I'm 
I'm just surprised that, that this can be so hard, especially as someone who fancies herself as a person who's very open-hearted usually, but this, the, all this torment is self-directed. So I was just wondering if you had some suggestions, like how to sort of not, because I feel myself sort of like sinking into this rut, like how not to do that. How would you describe the rut? Um, <clears throat> I just feel like I am steeping in dukkha. I'm just, I'm like... Okay, I, I understand, I understand. So the question is, is, you know, having actually really seriously undertaken the practice, that the effect of it seems to highlight the difficult? And there's a okay. weariness. And the, often in response to that, there, there can be a kind of weariness, um, which I would actually really pinpoint as another hindrance factor. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, you did it, well it, there. It, I'm sure that's really inspired you. You know, you're just going to be sitting here through the night. You know. Um, no, there, there is this. I think what you're saying is, is very true for many people in practice that we actually really don't know how unmindful we are until we begin to actually try to be mindful. We don't know how unconscious we are until actually we really begin to take care of what's going on in our minds. We don't know how many psychological and emotional habits we have, you know, until we actually turn our attention to what's actually going on. Now, initially, this feels like quite bad news. And it's why some people will quite frankly say, you know, I think I was much happier before I began practicing. Um, <laughs> but it's often kind of a deluded kind of happiness, obviously, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have begun practicing. So I, you know, I have a lot. I have a lot of empathy with, with mm. what you're experiencing. You know that, you know, suddenly you're faced with this, the, this, the enormity of the path and the enormity of what's being asked of us, and and you know, it can feel like um, almost impossible. What is really, really important here is to be very careful of your attitude that you bring into that because to bring in that attitude that I'm hearing a little bit of chipping away at the rock face. Totally. totally, okay. Chipping away at the coal face, you know, and wondering whether it actually makes any difference. Okay, so a couple of things I would say. First of all, you must be very careful of orienting your attention only towards the difficult. You might actually look at your life and actually say, is there anything that has fallen away here? Are there ways that I find myself to be a little more patient, a little bit less judgmental, a little kinder? Are there ways that this is actually beginning to kind of seep into my life in some ways that are actually genuinely appreciated? It's very easy to overlook that piece. Um, it's also very important not to be, to always have this meta, this macro picture, you know, Here's little me, and here's this huge path. The size of the task, the size of the path is only ever equal to the size of the moment. And I think the weariness often comes with feeling, oh, you know, I'm just slogging uphill, or there's another, you know, another chip at the rock face. 
that is that is something to be actually quite careful with because it's actually kind of a little bit sometimes a, a way of actually disconnecting from actually the the very way in which this is a present moment practice. You do not have yesterday's headache. You do not have tomorrow's toothache. You actually have what is right here, right in front of you. And so what is really being asked of you is not only mindfulness, but actually the sati, the mindfulness of befriending. Ah, this too has come to visit. Ah, this too is actually not come to visit. Mm-hmm. This too has not come to visit, appreciating actually what falls away. I mean, you also have to just really kind of in a way honor and applaud your capacity to show up with, with awareness in the midst of you know, uh, complex emotional, psychological processes and patterns, at least some curiosity and some willingness to investigate. So I, I'm, I think what I'm suggesting here is a question of rebalancing. Question of rebalancing. Um, the way that we can weigh too much towards <clears throat> what is yet to be done rather than actually what is being done. What is being done. And, you know, when we weigh too much towards what is, what is yet to be done, um, you know, it is probably quite overwhelming, the thought of that. I think it's very helpful to kind of actually in that rebalancing the question that always needs to remain very much in the forefront, I think, of our attention is um, let's get rid of the capital letters, liberation, the L, the big B, the big N for Nibbana, you know, the big A for awakening. I think we need to, it's, it's, although it's not about kind of negating those, I think the far more important question is how do we liberate the moment? How do we awaken the moment? Hmm? Uh, how do we unbind the moment? What do we cultivate in the moment? So we bring those very much into our present moment experience as a, as a cultivation. And actually we find, you know, there are a thousand, probably 10,000 moments in the day when you are not clinging. Isn't that amazing? Think of that. I'm sure it's quite, I'm convinced it's quite true. Mm. Yes. Yes. There are probably 10,000 moments in the day when you're not selfing. You know, it's very easy to have this kind of, this, this kind of view that clinging is a perpetual state. Well, of course it's not. It's a response in any moment mm. to what that we're not seeing so clearly. There are 10,000 moments in every day when clinging is not happening. We would die, I think, <laughs> if every moment of our day was filled with clinging and grasping and aversion and greed and hatred. <laughs> I don't think we could bear it. But it's, and it's not so. It's actually not so. And I think in that, in that sense of rebalancing, it's very, very important to actually really, really notice, really be mindful of those moments when this is not occurring, and that's not a vacuum, you know? When clinging is not happening, grasping is not happening, selfie is not happening, it's not a vacuum, it's not an empty space. Nature abhors vacuums. You know, in those moments when clinging is not happening, many other things will be present. Appreciation, um, mindfulness, care, sensitivity, empathy, 
And, you know, I think this is where the imbalance happens, is that we don't even tend to notice those moments simply because of that inclination of the mind to focus on what is wrong rather than what is well. Mm. I think this enormity of the task, um, we're confronted by a seeming enormity of the task and we lose all of our sense of (laughs) humour. Immediately, it's like it's sort of sucked out through the window (laughs) when you get that. Um, and there's one thing that I think I recommended yesterday, which is actually good, good meditation preserves a sense of humor about it. Because even if we are um, sensible of the things that we're not doing, that we really wish to, we were doing, actually this is a cause for actually sometimes laughing at ourselves. You know, just we go out, you know, like we can go out at the beginning of the day with the best intentions. You know, by the time you get to the office, it's screwed up. <laughs> you know, things like that. And, and it's, uh, it, you know, if you can see that repeating, uh, it can be the impetus, again, to loosen up a little bit around it. You know, to start to not, in a sense, contract around the problems. And I think Christine has given you some very sound advice for not contracting around the problem. Another thing that's actually within the Satipatthana tradition is that to conceptually reframe is a form of sati as well, to mindfully reframe things for yourself. You know, say when we look at the enormity of the task and think and you feel overburdened and feel like Sisyphus, you know, pushing the rock up the hill. Um, that doesn't have to be the case. You can look at it as an exciting task, you know, an exploration something we can learn from every moment, even when we make the mistake of falling back into past behaviours, so that it becomes a journey. It becomes an exploration. Not an exploration which we see just stretching out endlessly in front of us, but for this day, make this day your day of exploration, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And you will see things change. And it's really, really good to do, to instigate that kind of thing that Christina mentioned, which is a sort of review from time to time, to review what has actually changed in your life. Yeah? Because you will see it. And sometimes, and this question came up in one of the groups today, that actually sometimes you don't see a lot of change in the meditation itself. Uh, for some people, things don't change dramatically, so they get vastly peaceful minds and things like this, and it settles down, and all of the wonderful you know, sort of semi-mystical experiences that you might get. For some people, that just doesn't happen. They're still left with a chaotic mind. I know lots of people who've been meditating a long, long time. They said to me, I've been meditating 25 years. My mind's still a mess when I sit down and meditate. But when you, when you actually question them about what's changed in their life, there's enormous changes that have happened in their life, just as a result of engaging in this process. So it's good to do that review on a fairly regular basis. Find inspiration to keep you going as well. There's a like when you're just like, oh, I'm grasping on everything. I'm blah. Well, I think the conceptual yeah. reframing that John has yeah. mentioned is very important. I mean, yeah. I use the metaphor of Sisyphus a great deal. Yeah. You know, because Sisyphus could have just left the rock down the bottom of the hill. (laughs) 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 I just changed his relationship to it. I mean, (laughs) but sometimes you just got to stop pushing. You know, it is it is as it is. That rock was perfectly happy there before he started pushing it. 
I'm trying to rearrange the landscape of this world. But there is that conceptual reframing about actually how we're not actually that concerned. You cannot define yourself by the contents of your meditation. You cannot define yourself by the contents of your experience. You cannot define yourself by the rock. And, you know, that, there's a great art, I think, in this path of, of knowing how to take the practice and the path, you know, truly, deeply, seriously, without taking ourselves too seriously. This exaggerated responsibility is a sure cause of weariness. It's all up to me. Not I think we need to stop there. We're gone over. Thank you you again. Um, So we have some time now for some walking, and I'd really, really encourage you to engage with that and to come for the next sitting. It won't, again, be a really long sitting, except for those of you who wish it to be a really long sitting. And for those, it will be a long sitting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.